Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Would you please pray with me? Father, we need your help today. You were the one who rolled away the reproach of Egypt from your people. You're the same one who rolled away the stone after three days in the graves as Jesus rose again. We ask that you would roll away the darkness and the cloudiness of our eyes and our hearts. And as you do that by your spirit, we would see a glimpse of Jesus. As we see Jesus in the words of scripture, may we be transformed to become like him. If we ask it in his name, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy to see all of you this morning on this happy day. I love Baptism Sundays. They're some of my favorite times to gather together. It's a lot of good news. On the bad news front, I'm here to tell you this morning that we live in a world that is filled with empty promises. All of our products and our goods and our services promise to us ease and comfort for a small fee. We, ha- we can have this ease and comfort everywhere, all of the time. Our politicians promise their particular vision of the good life for us and our team and total victory over the bad team. Our degrees make these promises of a good job and of financial stability, long-term security, full satisfaction in our life choices, And legacy, something that we can pass on to our children. Tom Brady promises us that he will finally retire from the NFL. (laughs) Empty promises. Our friends promise us that they will stick with us through the ups and downs of life. From moving away to staying put to having children. All of those transitions and seasons in our life. Our spouses promise that they will stay with us till death do us part. Our children promise companionship and care as we age. Or even at the very least that they will pick up the phone and call us occasionally. Empty promises. But it's not just those people or those, the man that promises those things. It's ourselves, right? We promise that this year will be the year that we will finally eat keto or read Moby Dick, or join a gym, or max out our 401k, or give more to the C3 fund at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul. (laughs) And yet I'm confident that many of you made promises that you haven't even been able to keep for the last 25 days of Lent. You haven't even given up enough chocolate. Couldn't even keep that up. Hannah Arendt says that promises are the uniquely human way of ordering the future making it predictable and reliable to the extent that this is humanly possible. So our question this morning is what happens when a world is filled with so many broken promises? Promises has been um, a theme for our Lenten preaching, and it's been very unintentional. But starting a couple weeks ago, we heard from uh, the Reverend Dr. Sandy Kerner about God's promise to Abraham in, in Genesis 15. We'll hear more about that in a second. Then last week, Rob Sturdy talked about God's promise to Moses. We'll hear more about that in a second. 
And so this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua 4 and 5. You just heard it read. If you have a pew Bible there in front of you, if you want to just grab that, it's on page 180. That's where we'll spend most of our time exploring this theme of promises failed and promises fulfilled. So just to catch you up from last week, last week we heard uh, the, the account of the bush and God speaking to Moses, calling him to go to his people, to set them free by the power of, powerful hand of God. As you're here in Joshua 4 and 5, God has been true to that. Through the work of Moses, he's led them out of Egypt, freed them from slavery. He's led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And we come to this transition point between uh, Moses as this great leader, this great prophet of Israel, has passed the baton to Joshua, who does many of the things. There's kind of a recapitulation that happens at the beginning of the book between Joshua and Moses, Moses and Joshua. And just a few chapters before this, we hear this, this amazing moment where Israel crosses over the Jordan on dry land, similar to how they crossed the Red Sea in Exodus. And in chapter 4, 19 and 20, we hear that God has commanded his people to take 12 stones out of the Jordan. They pass through the Jordan on dry land. He says, take 12 stones from the middle of the river and set them up. And the purpose for that is that whenever your children would one day ask, what are these stones for? That you're to tell them, that we passed over this Jordan on dry land, just as our ancestors passed over the Red Sea. To the end that the peoples of the world, everyone will know that God's hand is mighty and that you may fear the Lord forever. That's the reason that they set up these stones, these markers. And then the beginning of chapter 5 confirms this reality when it says that all the kings of the land, all the kings in Canaan, this land that they've crossed into, they hear of what's happened and their hearts melt. There's no spirit within them. God has led them to this place, led them to the land that has been long pro- promised. And then if you skip forward a few verses to verse 10, the end of what we just heard read, the people celebrate the Passover, it says, on the plains of Jericho. And the moment they celebrate the Passover, the manna stops. God's provision that had been with them throughout the wilderness wanderings, they go away. And they eat the produce of the land. The, 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 the verse literally says that the manna had a Sabbath. The manna rested from that moment on. And if you'll remember that God's promise to Abraham that was that he would make them a great nation. That he would bless Abraham and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the passage we heard read two weeks ago, chapter 15, he says that they will be sojourners in a land they do not know. And for 400 years, they will be there until God brings judgment upon that nation. They will leave this land that they're sojourning in with many possessions, and they will come to the very land they're in now, the land of Canaan. Abraham is in that land whenever God makes that promise to him, and now it has come about. Last week, we heard how God promised to Moses that he had seen them. He'd heard their cries. He knew their afflictions. And he himself had come down to deliver them and to bring them up out of that place. So with that in view, has God kept his promises? Unequivocally, without hesitation, we can say, yes, absolutely, God has kept his promises. And that is why this passage um, is called by one scholar the literary climax of the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. This is the high point the peak. And there are moments that you get a glimpse of that in the Old Testament. Think about 
in uh, Chronicles, whenever uh, Solomon dedicates the temple and God's presence falls, it's the climax of God's promises and it promises to David and David's son. We have that kind of moment here. Every single promise that God has made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Israel has been fulfilled. Yet it's not just God who's made promises in our text. God's people too have made promises. Just a couple of chapters after the covenant God makes with Abram in uh, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God tells Abraham, after he changes his name, he says that you shall keep my covenant. And this is the covenant, that every male among you will be circumcised. Circumcision is the covenant sign of this agreement between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever, that they will be circumcised. And then a book later, on Sinai, God leads his people out of Egypt and they gather on this mountain and God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. And Moses lays out this law before them. And the scripture in in, uh, chapter 19, verse 7, all the nation, it says, with one voice say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yet we come to today's text and we see that this has most certainly not been the case. For none of the children who were born on the way, Joshua says, have been circumcised. And so before eating the Passover, this must be done. And so the Lord tells Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the whole nation. At a place that uh, was very difficult to, um, to pronounce, although that L did an amazing job, but the translation of that is the Hill of Foreskins, which seems to be a very appropriately named place, right? If you're going to do a mass circumcision, it makes sense to do it at the Hill of Foreskins. I'm sorry for that. (laughs) I I could not. So our text, though, makes very clear why it is that Joshua had to do this, and that is because the people who left Egypt, who'd been faithful to the covenant, who God had shown his faithfulness to, who had led them out, who said all that the Lord has said we will do, did not do it. They did not keep this covenant promise, the sign of the covenant was broken. And you could say, yes, maybe there was no flint. Convenient. Maybe there was no metal for knives. Maybe this is just a dirty, messy, unclean process, and we just don't want to get into it while we're traveling. But I find myself agreeing with one scholar who said that at best, this is a case of negligence. But at worst, it's defiance. The most simple, basic command of this covenant is not fulfilled. And the text connects this disobedience with a broader disobedience and failure when it says that this generation are those who died in the wilderness because they failed to hear and obey the voice of the Lord. The word there for hear is Shema. Probably sounds familiar. It's from Deuteronomy 6 when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. And then a few verses later it says, You shall teach your children these things when you walk on the way, when you sit down, when you eat. You should teach your children about my covenant and what it means to love me. And yet on the way, Israel has failed to do that. And so they die in the wilderness. And it says in the text that God raised up their children in their place. And after Joshua is obedient to do this, after the whole nation has been circumcised, the Lord comes in verse 9 and tells Joshua that today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from among you. In this moment, 
God has taken the shame, the guilt, the disgrace of a nation of slaves and rolled it away. It's a beautiful statement. God had not only delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he not only provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness, he now had brought them up to this place of goodness and abundance where they are no longer slaves. They have a land of plenty filled with milk and honey, everything that they need. And if you were reading this text for the first time, you might be forgiven if you assume that from this place they lived happily ever after. It's all good from this point, all up and to the right. But if you've read this before, familiar with the Old Testament, you know that just two chapters later, again, they break the covenant. And that begins a pattern where again and again and again and again, they break their promises to God who has kept every one of his. And we see glimpses of faithfulness, Throughout the narrative, but more than that, we see an abundance of idolatry and an abundance of injustice. Though God had kept every single one of his promises, his people had not. This morning we have the great joy to baptize this sweet boy, Fitz. You'll see him in a moment. You'll meet him in a moment. Promises will be made. Promises will be made by the parents and the godparents. You guys better be ready. You'll be asked questions like this. Will you be responsible to make sure that the child is brought up in the faith and life? And another question, a couple down. Will you obey all God's commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? Man, you guys seem like great people. But I'm not sure you can deliver on that. Likewise, the congregation and for me, the high point of every baptism service, you will be asked, will you who witness these vows do everything in your power to uphold these in their life and faith? And you will, of course, give a hearty, we will, right? With an exclamation point, maybe two. And yet every baptism I do, when I walk the baby around and I say, hey, one of the great ways that you can support this child in their life in Christ is to offer the family some free babysitting. And as far as I know, that just has not happened hardly at all, so... You've not kept your promise. We've not kept our promises. Like God's people, we've not kept our promises. We cannot keep our promises. But this morning, the most important promise that will happen today is not ours, but it is God's. As we, in a moment, celebrate this covenant sign of baptism, Colossians says that this is the circumcision of the heart, circumcision without hands, As James Perdue, Fitz, is baptized in the triune name of God, God makes promises over him to seal him, to mark him as his own forever. Promises to wash him, to cleanse him, to adopt him as his own, to bury him, to raise him up with Christ. Our New Testament lesson that we haven't read is from 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, new creation... That's the kind of moment that's going to happen in a second. And all of this, God does, as you can read in the top of your bulletin, all these things that God does on behalf of James, he does it, though James does not know any of it. He's just passed out. He doesn't even know what's going on in the service. He's not making any promises today. 
God is the one that's making those promises. And of course, of course, these parents and these godparents are going to make every effort to keep their promises. This cathedral church is going to make every effort to keep our promises to support this family and to support this boy. And yes, in time, James will come and claim these promises as his own. As he stewards an active faith, as he loves Jesus, as he has been loved by Jesus. And he comes for confirmation someday in just over a decade to be confirmed by the bishop. But today, this morning, friends, God is the primary promise maker. And unlike us, he keeps his promises. How do we know? How do we know God keeps his promises? We know this with great confidence when we look at Jesus. We see in Jesus that every single one of God's promises laid out in Scripture have been kept. He's the assurance. When we're unsure of what God looks like or unsure whether God will be true to his word, we look at Jesus and we see that he has, in fact, been true. And he has proved once and for all his love his care, his compassion, his intentions for people, for humanity. It's all true. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's how we know. And I recognize that there are probably some people here in this room or watching online who this does not feel true. When you look at your life, you look at your situation, you reflect upon your story, it doesn't seem as if God has kept his promises. And maybe you feel like you've kept your promises to him. Try to be obedient, try to be faithful, and he's not delivered on what you thought he would deliver. He has not provided healing of your body. He's not provided a spouse that you so long for. He's not provided children that you so desire He's not not provided the job that was your dream job or the promotion. He's not provided freedom from anxiety or depression that you've longed for and cried out for. God certainly can and does provide those things. And many of us have experienced that. Every good and perfect gift does come from him. But he's not promised us all those things in this life. And for whatever reason, because of the brokenness of the world, we still encounter loss. We still encounter things that are broken, that are, that are off. Someday it will not be so. But for now it is. More likely, though, it feels to some of you as if God has failed you because the people who were supposed to represent God to you failed to do it. Or maybe more than that, they harmed you. Maybe your family failed to nurture you to care for you, to provide basic resources for you. Maybe your church community disappointed you, abandoned you, rejected you for various reasons. Maybe people like me, pastors, leaders, confidants, have hurt you and abused you. And I just want you to know from me, I'm sorry for that. It should not be the case. I'm so sorry that your experience in this life has not given you an overwhelming sense of God's care and kindness and compassion and provision for you. That you've not found that in the church. That you've not found that with 
Christians. But I assure you this morning that Jesus is not like that. Despite what it seems like, despite what you have seen, Jesus is kind, he's gentle, he's lowly in heart. Scripture says, a bruised reed he will not break. People will fail you, friends, but Jesus never will. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here today exploring the faith or wondering what all of this is about, I can't prove it to you, but I can just say maybe it's worth a leap of faith that Kierkegaard talked about. It's worth, just worth giving it a shot and just seeing if Jesus is as good as I'm saying he is. I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards if you have questions about that. And so today, this morning, James Fitz is going to pass through this water of baptism sprinkled over his head. Just as Israel crossed the Jordan and crossed the Red Sea. And so my encouragement, my takeaway is for you parents and godparents today. He told Israel to get stones out of the river. There's another place where um, we use the word Ebenezer. We, we sung about that this morning. Ebenezer just means stone of help. It's a marker of God's faithfulness. And so my encouragement to you is create some stones. Find some stones. So that when James asks you, in a year or in five years or in 10 years or in 30 years, what did it mean that he was baptized? What did it mean that you stood up in a room full of people and made promises for him and that God made promises that you can tell him about it? You can grab this candle here, right here, and say, hey, this is the day that Christ purchased you and adopted you as his own. Take the bulletin home, make notes in it, and say, hey, this is, this is what happened this day. Show it to him, tell him about it. Help him remember, even as you remember, what God has done, the promises God has made. And for the rest of us, I'm sure that you have, you have these Ebenezers, you have these stones of help. You have moments where you can remember God's faithfulness, God's provision, God's care for you. And my encouragement to you this week is pull those out. Maybe it's a handwritten note from someone. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it is an actual stone or some kind of trinket that reminds you of how God cares for you. And if not, today's a great day for you to remember your baptism. You're going to hear all this stuff said. You're going to see a child welcomed into the household of faith. Remember what God has done, that he's brought you from death to life through the work of Jesus, his son. God gave them stones, of course, but at the end of the chapter, he also gave them a meal. This Passover feast that they were to eat as if they were leaving Egypt a new time. As if they were being brought in that moment out of slavery into new life. They ate it on the eve before they left Egypt and here they eat it as they enter the promised land. This feast, this meal of God's deliverance. And we, friends, in a moment, have this same meal. The meal of our deliverance where we taste and we see and we know that God cares for us, that God keeps his promises. And so as you come up here to the table, as you come and receive and eat the bread and drink the wine, friends, remember that unlike everything else and everyone else, God keeps his promises. Amen? Amen. Amen.